All right, if the PowerPoint is working, I wanted to open with paradoxes. And I titled this sermon, The Paradox of Life Through Death. I'm a pretty big fan of paradoxes. I'm going to give you two of the oldest paradoxes, some of the paradoxes that have been around for thousands of years. I'm going to give you some pictures. The first one I'm going to talk about is called the liar's paradox. Uh, and Paul actually uses this when he's talking to the church in Crete. He's writing to a guy named Titus, and he says, there is a poet that's a Cretan, and here's what this poet Cretan says. All Cretans are liars. Now, the person who wrote it was a Cretan. So therefore, do you trust a Cretan who's a liar all the time telling you that all Cretans are liars, right? And this is similar to this um, Pinocchio paradox. If Pinocchio says, uh, my nose grows now, how does Pinocchio's nose grow? By lying. Okay, now here, just, just think about that for a second. If Pinocchio's nose grows while lying, if his nose is growing, the statement is true, therefore his nose doesn't grow. But if his nose doesn't grow, then it's a lie, and it knows... Let, let your brain just trip for a minute on that particular paradox. Uh, the last one I want to talk about is the Zeno paradox. That's the one on the left, or the right, depending. I guess it's right. Nah, I don't know. Uh, stage right, stage left. I get all confused. Uh, in this particular paradox, it is the idea that you can never finish a race. Because as you start to run from point A to point B, to get to point B, you have to make that distance cut in half. And then from this point to this point, you cut the distance in half again, and again, and again. And here's the idea. You never can cut it in half enough to finish the race. So if you start a race, none of you are ever going to get to the finish line, according to Zeno's paradox, because you keep cutting the distance in half. Um, and those are all a different kind of paradox than what I'm going to talk about this morning. In one way, these paradoxes, I think, are actually easier than the paradox that Jesus is going to lay out for us. Not because we can't understand the paradox that Jesus is going to lay out for us, but because of what that paradox is going to demand of us. It's a whole different kind of way of looking at life. And so his paradox that he's going to reveal, the one that he's going to build uh, much of his teaching on, is this paradox that's the title of the sermon, that only in death is there real life. Right? Only in death is their real life. And that is Christ's paradox in particular. What he says is not a problem for the mind, but really a problem for the heart because it requires a completely different look at two things we intuitively think we know, what it means to live and what it means to die. And which one of those two things are the things we're going to spend our lives trying to maintain, right? Human life, in a sense, wants to stay living where oftentimes God's going to call us to be willing to die. And then he's going to go so far as to say that only in death is there real lasting life. And that is a very radical statement, both then for Jesus's audience and for us now, because it goes very much against what we think. So in this particular text, we're going to be looking at John 12. Um, if you look at it in, ver in relation to the book of John, it's about the middle. But if you look at it in relation to Jesus's life, it is in the last week of his life. So if that gives you some context as to the timing. Uh, John spends almost half of his gospel looking at the Passion Week because in his mind, that week is the most important week in history. There is nothing that's going to come even remotely close. So he's going to spend a ton of time zooming in here on these this last week of Jesus's life. And so what I would like to do for a moment is read John chapter 12, verse 20 to 30. Uh, well, I might break. Yeah, 20 to 36. If you would be willing to stand with me as I read John 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. 
They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life for this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that heard it heard, thought they heard thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was not for my, for your, sorry, this voice was for your benefit and not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this, show the kind of death that he was going to die. You may be seated, the reading of God's word. <clears throat> this passage begins on a unique point. <clears throat> Sorry. Because it's one of the few times that Jesus interacts with the Greek audience. And so we have a couple Greek people showing up, and they pull Philip aside, and there's speculation as to why Philip, but quite possibly Philip's name is a Greek name. And so if you're like trying to connect to Jesus, this rabbi that everybody wants to connect to, and he has these 12 disciples, you're probably going to lean into the one that is closest to you. You know, Philip may identify more with the Greek-speaking person than maybe some of the other disciples would. And so Philip, he's like, I don't know what to do with this. And so he goes and gets Andrew. Now, at the beginning, of, of when we first meet Andrew a couple years before, Andrew is the guy who ends up leading other people to Jesus. He's like, I have found the Messiah, and he just takes whoever he's with, and he brings them right to Jesus. And Andrew does the same exact thing at this point. He sees uh, a couple people who need to know something about Christ, and he, he takes them, and he's like, brings them right to Jesus. And then this is where it gets weird, right? Someone wants to see Jesus, and what does Jesus say? What's the first thing he says? By the way, I'm a teacher, so most of these questions are not meant to be rhetorical. What does he say in verse 23? The hour has come. Does that at all seem to answer the question that these Greek men are looking for, right? He like launches into this teaching that at first glance doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. He's like, my hour has, not, my hour has come. Uh, and I tell you the truth, unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, and then he goes into this huge teaching. But here's what I want you to notice. At the beginning of this text, the Greeks want to see Jesus. And at the end of this text, Jesus is going to say this, but I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. In essence, he's trying to connect what they actually, what they think they want. They just want to see Jesus. We don't know what they're actually after. But Jesus is saying, when I pass through this death and life process, not only will these Greeks be able to see me, I am going to actually be drawing all people to myself. And so hold that in your mind, that last point with this point, because that's where he's ultimately going to go. He's going to try to make his connecting point here. Because in his understanding, and in ours too, he's looking at a reality that I think is still just as mysterious now as it was 2,000 years ago. This is a piece of corn. Okay, I'm going to set that right here, which you cannot see very well. But that one piece of corn, given enough time, will produce what? An ear of corn. Now, 
this is one seed, and I looked this up because I'm kind of lame. There is 0 0.08 calories of nutrition in this one seed. Okay, 0 0.08, 65. Now, the botanist world, I'm sure, has all kinds of explanation as how this... Don't worry, I brought two. Because I plan to drop one of them accidentally at some point in this message. All right. How a, a seed goes from here to here is a mystery. Now, you can talk about DNA, but, you know, for those of you who look at DNA, is that not magic? You know, these microscopic things create from this to this. But here's Jesus' point. His point is this. In order for this to happen, this has to die and undergo such a radical transformation that this would never look the same again. And he says, unless a seed falls to the earth and dies, there can be none of this. And here's where he's starting to bring his challenge, um, the amazingness of what he wants to accomplish. Fruit can be produced, but it can only be produced if something dies. And he's going to take a look at two points here. His first point is, ultimately, he's going to be the first seed that's going to be put into the ground and die. And out of his death is going to flow life. You know, the church is going to come out of his death. But he's also going to turn the script and he's going to look at you and me. And he's going to say the same thing to you and me. Unless you're willing to lay down your life, growth and life won't happen for you either. He is the seed, which is going to grow the church. But we are little seeds in which he wants to grow life in and through us. And so I'm going to put these two up here as our, as our object lessons. I don't have anything else in the bag. So for if you're, you know, looking for more object lessons, sorry, none, none of that kind. So here's what he's going to challenge us to. He's going to say that glorification is going to come from death. He's, he's actually looking forward to, in one way, his death, because by his death, new life is going to come. And these Greeks, who really probably have no understanding of what it means to be a Jew, they don't understand salvation, they don't know what the Messiah is, we don't know why they're there. But these Greeks are ultimately going to be drawn into the kingdom and elevated to a higher place. And that's where he's going to challenge us with this principle of dying. But I also want to expand a little bit because the seed that undergoes change doesn't just die. It's forever altered. And sometimes we have this picture of Jesus on earth for 33 years. He's like in the worst, vaca the worst vacation of all time, right? He goes from the glory of heaven. He kind of like plums it on earth for 33 years. And then he goes back to heaven to the way that he was. But you read the Gospels and that is not what he does. We are told that he takes to himself a human nature for how long? forever. He is forever taken to himself a human nature. That is a transformation that we can't even begin to process. So when I'm talking to the junior hires, I use this illustration. There is more similarities between me and a slug than there is between God and a human. Way more similarities. For God to become a human, he had to step so much lower than it would ever be for me to step into the life of a slug. I would be more at home as a slug than God would be as a man. And that that is the, the transcending that Jesus did to cross all that distance, to come all the way down to where we are in order to spend his life with us. So it's this humility in a sense of serving. And we serve with a God who is willing to, to die and to take on the human nature in order to help us. So let's do some calorie counting. We have our one seed as 0 0.08 calories. This seed dies and produces... 65 calories, if you took all 800, which is, I think, the average for kernels of corn here, if you took all 800 of these and planted them, who are my math people? How many kernels of corn does this produce if we planted this out? I did the math, just in case. This is Greer. 
<laughs> According to my math, it's like 640,000 kernels, okay? If you plant those 640,000 kernels, you end up with 512 million kernels after three generations. And in many ways, one of the miracles of the truth of the gospel is how Jesus took a group of out-of-the-way country hicks and transformed their lives in such a way that the Christian church became the dominant religion of Rome in 300 years. One to 512 million. That is an example of the power of the gospel. And it's also a, a reality check that if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then how do you explain that? A group of people who are willing to lay down their lives in front of lions, be crucified, burned at the stake for this Jesus that they have so wholeheartedly committed to. And Jesus was seeing all of this. He's like, this life that I'm going to lay down in a dark place is going to produce a, a crop. And we are the next generation of that crop for this time, for just such a time as this. And we hear all kinds of news, right? If, you know, the, the internet is really good at feeding you what you want to read. And depending on where you look, the church in America, shrinking or growing, shrinking. And we can start to fixate on that. But what's going on around the world? It's growing. And so here's our challenge. We, this is where we live. We live in a church in America that is shrinking. And we can either accept that fact and just roll over, or we can continue to reach out to people and trying to show them the gospel. But at the end of the day, to trust that the God who planted that first seed and brought that seed to life is going to do that with you and me where we are right now. And in essence, it's not the seed's responsibility to grow. The seed just gets planted. It's in the seed, the power that's within the seed to make it grow. And that's the power of the Lord in you and me to cause us to grow, to reach those who, are, who we've been called to reach. And we may not see all of that. We may not see the outcome of that. And that's okay. And I'll, I'll end the sermon with a couple examples of that. So there can be no glory without suffering. There can be no fruit without death. And there can be no victory without surrender. And Jesus is starting to capture all of that. But he's also going to make this statement if you look what he says here. He says, but to the person who loves his life, what happens? He loses it. The person who loves their life in this world will ultimately lose it. But the person who hates their life in this world will gain it. And so there's the Darwin Awards. Anyone familiar with the Darwin Awards? It's like ways that people die stupidly. Okay. And in one of the examples is tragic. Uh, you know, I'll explain why. In 2001 in Idaho. There was a man driving down a snowy road. I don't think this is the picture, but it looked like it should be. All right, so just picture yourself in a van with friends driving down this road, and the brakes go out of the van. And if you've ever done any mountain driving, brakes going out is terrifying. And so this guy, his brakes go out. He doesn't tell anyone in his van that the brakes have gone out. He opens the door, and he jumps out of the van, leaving all these people in the van with no driver. Well, someone in this, the side jumps into the van, manages to stop the van, they crash it into a, you know, in a way. Everyone in the van survives. As they're walking up the hill, what do they find? The driver died. In order to try to save his life, what had he done? Took, him, took his own life. And how many times, and I see this in my own life, not quite as extreme as that, but how many times when there's a trouble in my life, there's just this weird temptation to jump, to do something, to escape the trouble. And in the process of trying to escape the trouble, what do we find? 
we compound the trouble so often. This guy, in order to save his life, ended up losing his life. And there's tons of examples of people who are willing to risk their life and end up actually saving not just themselves but others. And there's the challenge for us. When that difficulty comes our way, whether it's in school, at work, with family members, with our neighbors, and there's this desire to shrink back, to pull back from the situation, be careful about doing that and ask yourself the motivation. Why are you pulling back? Is it fear? Is it because you don't want to be embarrassed for the sake of the gospel? What is the reason? And just remember, we shrink back. There's a risk that goes with that, right? We might actually end up losing the very thing we're trying to maintain. But then Jesus flips it. And he's not talking about a person who hates themselves with low self-esteem. What he's recognizing here is the person who looks at the world, knows this isn't my home, and that I have an anchor in something eternal. That person can now go through this life with a devil-may-care attitude in the right way. Does that make sense? They can go through life saying, I know that God is with me, and I do not have to be afraid of what the future is going to hold for me because I know the one who holds the future. And so they are—they know. They know what we all sort of know, that this life is going to come to an end for all of us. No one makes it out alive. And the question is, do we live with that reality now and just make choices as if that's true or not? And that's the struggle for us because it's been said this, uh, there is, you know, the idea of trying to avoid pain. And here's a quote. I'll read it relatively slow. Perhaps the only avoidable pain is the pain we acquire by trying to avoid all pain. I'll read it one more time. Perhaps the only avoidable pain is the pain that we acquire by trying to avoid all pain. By trying to avoid pain, that's the only pain that we can actually stay away from. Pain is a fact of life. I just preached three sermons to the teachers this week about the pain of faith, the pain of hope, and the pain of love. You will hear that at some point, probably, uh, but not today. But just the fact that there's pain in every choice we make, there is no way to avoid pain. And Jesus is just laying it out real early here for his disciples, for these Greeks, for these Jews, to say, to follow me is to, in a sense, ask for pain. But there's the joy that goes with it. And here's where he's going to transition a little bit. So here's what he moves on to, seeing Christ and serving others. Here he's going to talk about service. So after he lays out that if you're willing to lay down your life, you will actually keep it, he then says the person who's laid down their life is now going to serve me. So here's what he says. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who honors me. So he's thinking about this idea of death, and this, this triggering of death has led him to thinking through, well, how do you then live? If I realize that my life is temporary, and I'm dead to sin and alive with Christ, using that Galatians metaphor, what do I do with that reality? And here's what he says. The person who recognizes this is now going to serve Jesus wholeheartedly. He's going to fully, fully commit to it. Now, in the, in the Greek, there's two different words for servant here. I, I use that Mark 10, 44 and 45 because it puts both words side by side. Mark 10, 44 talks about being a slave. That's that doulos word. That's the word that the, the apostles use of themselves all the time. And what, it's, what that word is trying to emphasize is the connection between the master and the servant. It's, it's a servant connection word. The authority of the master supersedes the servant. So again, in your Bibles, many times when the apostles reference themselves as servants, it really should be translated slave. I am a slave of Christ. And in Mark 10, 44, that's what he uses. And it even says it in the NIV, it translates it slave. But then Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, I have not come to be, this word, 
diakonos. I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That word, diakonos, is the word used here. Because I want you to notice in this text, he says, those who serve me are serving with me. The idea is that Jesus is actively serving people. And this word is calling us to be active in the duties of servanthood. This word is used to talk about what we're supposed to be doing, not necessarily the connection to the master. Because in this case, we're serving right alongside Jesus. And he modeled this consistently throughout his life. The next chapter is this picture, right? Jesus is going to, in chapter 13, wash the disciples' feet. He will lay down, in a sense, his rights and serve them. And in this text, he's calling you and me to do this, to serve with him, alongside of him, and that he will be with you in the process. Because here's where we start to see some of the reward. The reward of one of the payments of following Christ is that you're with him. So every so often, the school does field trips, and we do all kinds of things. You know, we go to New York City. Um, but oftentimes with kids, who they're with is more important than what we're doing, right? If you go to New York City and you're stuck with me, that's just sad, especially if all your friends are doing this. We can be having the funnest, funnest, wrong word, the most enjoyable time in New York City. But if you're not with your friends, high schoolers, how does that feel? Not so great, right? You'd rather be with your friends. We then had a follow-up. We had this like be the salt servant day where uh, we ended up, my group ended up cleaning up horse poop for hours. So fun. <laughs> but the funny thing is there was many kids in that group who were like, oh, it's over. It's time to leave. They were having fun, not because of what they were doing, but because of who they were with. And in the reality check for us, one of the rewards for following and serving Christ is we follow and serve with him. He promises to be with us in those service-oriented moments. And that's one of the promises is to be present with Christ. But then, like a cheap infomercial, but wait, there's more, right? What does he go on to say in that text? He says, the, the Lord will be present with you. But then he goes on to say, you will receive honor from God the Father. Honor. And that is such a powerful human longing, right? To, to receive honor, to be recognized for something is something we all ultimately want. And there's ways to go about doing it to get honor for yourself, right? My favorite is the Christian humble brag, right? The Lord used me to fill in the blank, right? The humble brag. Seeking to get honor for something that you've done. Seeking to get recognition for something that you've done. That's a human desire. And Jesus never goes once and says that's wrong to want that. The problem is they receive honor from who? That's the issue. And so in this case, he says, those who seek me will be honored by God. The most powerful being in the world will provide you with honor. Because the greatest honors we receive are the ones that other people recognize. And the level of the honor is, is by who's doing the recognizing. So I, I went down a rabbit hole, so forgive me. I'm going to share it with you anyway. The Purple Heart is pretty neat, right? For those of you in the military, what's, how do you get a Purple Heart? You get wounded in action. That's how you receive a Purple Heart. I'm just going to give you two fun facts about the Purple Heart. Uh, Curry Haynes in Vietnam received the most Purple Hearts. He received 10. Nine of them in the same conflict. Isn't that crazy? So he got like nine purple hearts. I don't even know what that would look like on a uniform. Do they just put a pin in the ribbon or do they give you 10 ribbons? I don't even know. But he, he holds the most. But my favorite story is the only president to receive a purple heart. Anyone know which president 
received the Purple Heart. It was, as far as I know, JFK. I mean, there could be more. But in JFK's story, he was in a boat, and a torpedo had sunk his boat, and he ended up falling and really injuring his back, which, as far as I know, followed him for the rest of his life. And he was knocked into the sea, and one of his crewmen was seriously burned and more or less unconscious. And so he, sw- he swam three miles with a hurt back and the life vest in his teeth of the guy he drugged, and he received the Purple Heart. Now, the Purple Heart is a great honor, but you can get that, I mean, I don't want to say this, uh, relatively easily. You just have to be at the wrong place at the wrong time to get the Purple Heart. You don't have to do anything overly heroic. You know, you just have to stand up when someone was shooting behind you and you catch a bullet in the arm and boom, Purple Heart for you, right? And they'll give Purple Hearts out pretty, I don't know, again, not easily, but they'll give out the Purple Hearts pretty easily in groups by your commanding officer, and that's a thing. And if you have a Purple Heart, that's an honor. You have been injured in the line of duty. And again, most soldiers go through their entire careers never having been injured in the line of duty. But then there's the Congressional Medal of Honor, the blue one, right? And that one is unique. That one is not given out easily. And who's the one who does this honor? The president is the one who recognizes this honor and recognizes you individually. So it's one of the things we think about when it comes to honor is there's, there's levels. But what makes an honor great is who's the one doing the recognition. So Purple Heart is a great honor. The Congressional Medal of Honor is the honor. But then what does Jesus say here? God the Father will honor those who serve him. And we don't even fully know what that means. It blows our minds to even think about what would it mean for God to honor. But Jesus says the person who walks in obedience, lays down their life and serves, that's the person that gets this honor. And again, here's that challenge. Because what does the flesh want to do? The flesh wants to avoid death of every kind possible. Death to myself, death, death to others. I want to live for me. I want to make sure I have what I need and at the cost of other people around me. But the gospel calls us to something much higher, something much deeper. The gospel calls us to lay down our lives and that in doing so, we may die, but there will be something coming from it. And that's a challenge. So I just want to give us three quick categories of life where that's a challenge for us. Family, work, and ministry. Right? So family, that's where it's so easy to just not lay down our lives, right? There's one, There's in my house right now, there is one Pop-Tart left. I was very tempted to eat the one Pop-Tart today. Just, and not because it was like, to, you know, because we could justify like, well, if I leave the one Pop-Tart, I have three kids. That's just creating conflict to save conflict for the good of my family. I will eat the Pop-Tarts. It'll be, it'll be tough. A sacrifice I'm willing to make, right? But you multiply that out by how many sacrificial choices do we have every day? Hundreds? And Jesus is saying, if you are willing to lay down your life, other people in your family can go. Other people in your family will be healed and nourished, multiplied. Work. Right? So easy to work for the sake of just the paycheck at the end of the day. Whereas we know in Colossians, we're told, work as if working for the Lord and not for men. And if you do, what does that passage say? Does anyone know? Colossians 3. And if you do work for the Lord and not for men, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. And he's writing to slaves in that category. When we go to work, it's more. It's about the people. And yeah, 
sometimes, again, I work in high school world where you're hardly ever recognized by the students themselves, but you are seeking to give up your life so that they may grow. That's my world. What's it look like in your world? And last but not least, ministry. Churches all over this country need people to use their gifts to serve, to lay down their lives. And sometimes it's simple laying down your life to work with little kids in the back. Sometimes it's simple vacuuming the rug. Sometimes it's more complicated. But there is plenty of needs around us in service to give of ourselves for the sake of others, to lay down our lives for a couple hours a week, to die with those hours and trust that God is going to do something great. Again, will you always see it? No. This seed, depending on its consciousness, may not even know what it's, what's being done to it. But other people do. Other people see it. All right, now we move on. Now the pain and then the glory. So as Jesus is telling these, is he doing this teaching, it's like the reality of what's about to happen is striking him very intensely. Now in John's gospel, there is no Garden of Gethsemane scene. Many scholars think this is John's way of showing the garden moment for Jesus. This is the climax point. Here is where the reality of what's about to happen in about five days is going to strike him. And so take a look at what he says. Now my heart is troubled. That word is like a heavy word. You know, for us, trouble kind of is like one of those medium kind of words. But here, this is an intensely deep word. My heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That is the human prayer. Take me out of this pain. Help me avoid difficulty. And Jesus felt that difficulty. And I love the fact that he understands us when our prayer in difficult times rarely is, God, bring yourself glory through my suffering. Right? Most of us, that's not our lead prayer. Most of us pray, Lord, help me out of this and as quickly as possible. Jesus understands that feeling. But what does he say? No, that is not the prayer I'm going to pray. I'm not going to pray, Father, take me out of the, of, off the cross. He says, Father, may your name be glorified. Your will be done, not my will be done. And so he's not ever going to ask you or ask me to do something that he was unwilling to do himself. He's never going to do it. We, we serve and follow a God who came to earth, lived a life, went through the process, and asks us to follow him as and live as he did. And we see that here. He's struggling. He's feeling the weight of it. This is his Garden of Gethsemane moment where he's feeling the weight of the cross. He understands, unlike us, what it's going to actually mean to lay down this life of his in order that we may receive the benefit. And so here's our challenge. He sees this trouble. He says, now my heart is troubled. But then when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He knows that the now pain is a temporary pain. It's not permanent. There's, but there's going to be an eternal fruit that's going to come out of his life, out of the moments of his pain. And the same is true for you and for me. The pain of our lives is temporary. And we want to be careful about the decisions that we make in those moments because it is all too easy to recognize pain and have that lead us to a state of hopelessness. But it is not hopeless for the Christian because we follow and serve the Lord who has anchored our hope in heaven and all pains right now, he is glorifying if we seek to obey and stay with him. So perhaps in heaven, when we look back over the course of our lives, maybe those moments of suffering that we wanted to get out of the most are the moments where God was most glorified in us. And that seems to be the teaching of scripture. 
And I know, all of us, we want to avoid those difficulties as much as possible. But perhaps, rather than asking God to take us out of those difficulties, to ask God to be glorified through us in those difficulties. And that seems to be a prayer that God will answer. In this particular case, God actually answers from heaven. Right? There's a voice from heaven that says, I have been glorified and I will be glorified through you, right? This is, this is the voice of God speaking and answering Jesus's prayer. Um, and so he's, he's going to do this. He's going to wait. Now for us, we struggle, right? I just got done teaching through the story of Lazarus. And this weird text is stated this way. Because, and it's like this. Because Jesus loved Mary and Martha, he waited two more days before he left to go help them. Now, if you know anything about that story, by waiting, what had happened? Lazarus died and was rotting for four days. But because Jesus loved them, he wanted to do something more than just help out their brother. He wanted to elevate their faith. And the only way that was going to happen was for them to walk through the valley of suffering, to see the power of God resurrect the dead. And that was going to be more lasting and more influential than just another healing of a sick person. This healing was something else. And that is the way that he works in our lives. Now my heart is troubled. Now I'm experiencing suffering. But that's not a permanent state of being. It's a temporary state of being. And we can remember that. And we don't know how long it's going to last. I wish I could tell you. wish we knew. But we do know it is not going to last forever for those who love the Lord. So as Christ's mind runs down the course of where he's going to happen, we now move to our second sets of now. So now is the trouble. And then now the crisis, and the dethroning. So here's where he moves to the second set of nows. He says, now is the time for judgment. Now the prince of the world is going to be driven out. And these things are a little bit different. That word um, judgment in the NIV, I'm not sure what it is in other translations. The Greek word is crisis. Now is the time of crisis. And this is the climactic point of Jesus's life. This is the climax. Now, normally when we think of climax, We think of the end of a battle scene in a movie, you know, the Avengers show up. It's the last battle where the evil is overthrown. We think of that as the climax. Or we think about the gospel. We think the climax is Jesus on the cross and then his resurrection. And I'm not downplaying that. But I'm going to borrow from the Shakespeare version of climax. In Shakespeare, the climax usually happens in about the third act, near, near the end of the third act. About halfway through the story, each of the protagonists has a choice to make. And the choice they make is then if you remember your, your Shakespearean studies in high school, then you have the falling action. After this character makes their main decision, the rest of the story falls and decides if it's going to be a tragedy or a comedy. So I'll just give you two quick examples with Hamlet, famously a tragedy. Hamlet's climax does not happen with the killing of his uncle. The, the climax happens when he sees his uncle praying and asking God for forgiveness, and he has the opportunity to do justice, to kill his uncle. But what does he decide? I will not kill my uncle while he's praying because he'll go to heaven and I don't want that. I'm going to kill my uncle when he's doing something normal or terrible so I can condemn him to hell. He moves from justice to revenge. And in that moment of not taking the life of his uncle, what happens to Hamlet? He loses everything. And Hamlet famously ends as a tragedy because in the climax moment, he had a choice before him. Do I operate in justice? to operate in revenge. He chose revenge. And that led to a series of consequences he couldn't possibly predict. Now we'll flip it, The Tempest. I have not read this one, but I asked the English teacher. He confirms that what I'm going to tell you is true. 
Prospero is a guy, is the protagonist in that story, and he is like taken advantage of, I think, by his brother, and he's like condemned to an island, and he has the opportunity to get revenge on his brother, and he chooses to forgive his brother, and in that act, I'm pretty sure it happens in Act 3, in that moment, he chooses to forgive his brother, his life improves, his family's life improves, and even his villainous brother repents. At least that's what I hear. And that's what leads to a comedy. Now, here's the cross. Here's the cross for us. In essence, the cross is the picture of tragedy and comedy, and not ha-ha comedy, Shakespearean comedy. Because Jesus is willing to take every bad action we've ever made, every evil choice, every choice of Hamlet and Macbeth, and every person who's made a horrible decision, which is every one of us in this room, what do we deserve from those horrible choices? Tragedy. And yet for the Christian, what has Jesus done for us? He's taken our tragedies, our horrible decisions that should have led to hell, and what has he done? Gone to hell on our behalf and given us his right choice, his comedy, so all of our lives are dramatically improved. This is his moment, and this is his, his two choices. He sees it very clearly. Do I ask God to remove the pain, or do I ask God to be glorified? And he says, because I understand the Father, I ask God to be glorified. And for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, right hand of the Father, forever, for you and me, to call us into his presence. That is the world being brought into judgment. Not what we think, right? Not what we think. But then he moves on to the second now. And now the prince of darkness is about to be dethroned. The prince of evil is about to be driven out. Now that's a process. The cross cements it. But now that's a process where we have to fight that evil every single day in our own hearts and in our own mind. And that that evil is coming to an end because he's ultimately seeking to draw all people to himself. And that is the beauty of the gospel. And when he says this, if you, if you take a look at verse 32, but I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all men myself. He's talking about Numbers 21. And in that story, back in Numbers, the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, complaining and arguing and wishing they could go back, which is the repeat pattern of the book of Exodus and Numbers. It's just the people complaining, saying, we wish we could go back. We hate this food. We hate you. We hate everything. And in one of those moments, God sends a bunch of serpents into the midst of the people who attack and bite them. And many people are dying all over the place. And they find they're like, oh, this is bad. And they cry out and say, Lord, they say, Moses, please talk to the Lord and, and send these serpents away so we don't all die. And so Moses talks to God and God tells him, take a bronze serpent and wrap it up on a pole and hold it up. And all people who look at that serpent will be healed. Now, just think about the uniqueness of that. The serpent is the representation of evil, Satan, darkness, all the things you do not want. And in this moment, God is taking the very picture of evil and turning it into something that brings life. Jesus is taking our evil and being elevated. And when we come to him, we have life. Jesus takes a cross, the picture of crucifixion, humiliation, execution, and all things dark and evil. And he's going to now take that cross, which in their culture would have been a sign of shame, and he's going to elevate that to a sign of hope and grace. 
right? Have you ever walked into a church that didn't have one of these hanging on a wall somewhere? But think about how weird that would be. Would it be equally weird if we walked into a church and it had a gallow or an electric chair in the front? And yet, isn't that what this is? So why do we think of this as a sign of grace? Because when Jesus was lifted up, he drew all men and all people to himself. And that's the power of what God wants to do in taking our little lives, letting them die, and raising them to something new. He wants to do that in every single one of us. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the source and the power for how that can happen. And that's what he's going to be working on in us. Now, here's the challenge for us. Where do you feel the drawing power of the Holy Spirit in your life to a place you don't want to go? Right? We think of him drawing people to himself as a good thing, and it is. But keep in mind, this whole text we just read, those that are drawn to him means what? They're going to be willing to lay down their lives and serve him. That's what it means to be drawn to the Lord. So my challenge to us, where in your heart of hearts right now are you feeling his drawing power that you are kind of pushing against? And if you do not let that go, then that will not lead to life, but a form of death. And if you know in your heart of hearts right now what you need to be letting go of, then just take it from Jesus. Don't take it from me. Take it from Jesus that if you let that go to him, he says, I will resurrect that into new life. And again, you may not see it. I wish I could tell you that you will always get to see that resurrected life. You won't necessarily. And that's where the faith and the hope comes into play. Because one day you will get to look back, I think, but you may not see it in this life. Jesus says to his disciples, you must do this if you want to follow me. Now, the, the, the Jews are going to get all upset. We're not going to go over the next text. But if you take a look at verse 34 and 35, the Jews are like, but we thought the Messiah was going to live forever. You keep talking about him dying. Notice what they're worried about. If the chosen one of God, the Messiah that they've been looking for for hundreds of years is going to die, what about us? Right? That's their fear. What about us? And they don't believe in him, and Jesus leaves their midst and hides himself because they will not accept the truth. They won't do it. They won't believe. Because they looked at themselves, and they refused to be willing to sacrifice for the furthering of God's kingdom, not the Jewish kingdom. And the same struggles for us, to sacrifice our lives for God's kingdom and not our kingdom. So the Jews had a serious issue with unbelief, and the question now is, where are we going to be planted? And I wanted just to end with a couple um, famous missionary stories and then to, and quote the Lord's Prayer together as we get ready to take communion. Because again, Jesus says, my life brings nourishment, right? 0 0.08 calories, 65. Jesus says, my body, which we'll take communion in just a minute, broken for you, take this in remembrance of me and experience real, lasting, authentic life. That's the challenge. Now, Jim, Jim Elliott famously went to the Aka Indians or the Wadani, depending on which time frame you read their story. How many people came to know the Lord because of Jim Elliott in his actual lifetime? Zero. Not a single Wadani was saved during Jim Elliott's lifetime. He was speared to death along with his friends and missionaries. And now today, they estimate that 20% of that tribe are actively following the Lord. Some say as high as 40%. He died. Prop Drew. David Livingston, famous missionary to Africa, 
opened the door to, to inland missions into Africa. He went places no white person had ever gone before. Yeah, how many converts he had? One. And yet, he opened doors to an entire mission field that is still being actively pursued today. All right, so here's our struggle. We don't see the outcome. We wish we could. We cannot. But what we can do is say, Lord, I trust that anything you ask me to do is nothing you didn't already do on my behalf and that you will multiply any decision I make to sacrifice on your behalf and that you will allow that seed to die and you will bring new life out of that. And I'm willing to do that. That's what he's asking us to do. And I would like to close with the Lord's Prayer just because of the reality of what it captures, right? So here's what I would like to do if we're all willing. I know we don't normally do this, but I'd like everyone to stand. Um, I put it on the board. I know many of us have memorized it in the King James and the NASB and the ESV. I'm just going to put it in the NIV. So for those of you who want to quote in the King James, I'm sorry. I thought about doing that, um, but here's the text. Or here's the prayer, and here's the prayer I'd like us to pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Now we're, we're going to transition into...